Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. In this series, Safe Lives are shining a spotlight on lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans plus people experiencing domestic abuse. In this episode, Colette Eaton-Harris meets with Evelyn Sharp of charity RISE. RISE runs a specialist LGBT refuge project offering temporary accommodation, outreach and resettlement support to medium and high-risk LGBT survivors of domestic abuse. Evelyn has worked as an LGBT specialist IDVAR and here talks about some of the potential barriers faced by lesbian and bisexual women and highlights good practice points for IDVAR services to adopt. Evelyn, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. You were a specialist LGBT domestic abuse worker. Can you say a bit more about why that role was created and why there might be a need for specialists? Yes, so that role was created at my organisation RISE in Brighton um, and it was part of a specialist project that was developed because it was recognised that there was a known um, large population of LGBT identified people in that area, yet looking at um, the amount of um, out LGBT people who were accessing domestic abuse services they seemed to be very underrepresented. Um, So it was recognised there was perhaps some sort of issue there in terms of accessibility. Therefore, um, a specialist project was created. And really the aim of that was to provide support to LGBT people around domestic abuse that was specialised to their needs and their experiences to try and help increase accessibility into domestic abuse support um, and to help build links both with LGBT communities locally and other LGBT community groups and charities that were operating in the local area. In that specialist project, did you find that the types of domestic abuse being disclosed were in any way similar to what we'd expect to hear from heterosexual victims of domestic abuse? We would see some real similarities that some of the forms of abuse could be um, very, very similar, uh, regardless of whether the person experiencing the abuse um, identified as LGBT or not. Um, However, in addition to those, there are some specific forms of identity abuse um, that we identified um, were occurring specifically to LGBT people um, that were very much linked to their identity. So focusing in on lesbian and bisexual women, um, some things that we were aware of in our project um, include... uh, bisexual women who may be experiencing um, emotional abuse from a partner, whether that partner is a woman or a man. Um, And that abuse could be really focused on that person's bisexual identity, perhaps accusing them of being um, unfaithful um, or challenging the validity of their identity as bisexual. Um, Another thing that we noticed uh, supporting um, lesbian and bisexual women was a trend where we supported a number of um, women who had come out as lesbian or bisexual later in life and who may have, um, as part of that, ended a relationship 
um, with a, a male partner. Um, and in some cases, if that male partner um, was abusive, um, there might be some very specific post-separation abuse that would occur um, that would be very much linked to her um, identity as lesbian or bisexual. Um, they might also be told if they had children um, that uh, being gay or bisexual meant that they were an unfit mother um, and they could specifically experience some homophobic abuse. Um, we also um, found through our work that uh, one of the ways in which um, people could be abused was through threats to out that person as LGBT, um, particularly if that person was not openly LGBT in all areas of their life. So they might, for whatever reason, uh, not be out in their workplace or with extended family members. Um, and in some cases, we knew that particularly with family, um, that the, the survivor of abuse might be aware um, that it would really damage relationships or that they would be rejected or ostracised um, if their family were to become aware of them being LGBT. So that meant that um, it could have a particularly controlling and threatening effect if they were threatened um, with being outed. Often that might be in relation to if you uh, leave the relationship or if you don't comply um, with uh, what... Um, what you're being told to do, um, that you will be outed. Probably um, one of the main other ways um, in which we saw kind of different forms of abuse occurring um, against lesbian and bisexual women um, would be in relation to families of origin. So in some cases, someone might um, be from a family who um, hold homophobic or biphobic views, um, or generally do not feel supportive of that person identifying as anything other than heterosexual. And in those cases, that person might at times experience some specific abuse from their family um, that was very much centred on their sexual orientation that seemed to be in response um, to them having come out. Um, Potentially, in some cases, that can even link into um, issues such as um, so-called honour-based violence or forced marriage um, that's been particularly triggered um, by that person uh, coming out as lesbian or bisexual within a family who deem that to be unacceptable. So really, for some um, clients, there's going to be a risk beyond their current partner um, there's going to be risks posed by previous partners, by family members, and I guess for some people also being concerned about homophobic kind of hate crime in, in the local area that they that they live in as well. So multiple kind of perpetrators for some people. Yes, definitely. And in terms of how domestic abuse is often portrayed, usually it's depicted as a physically stronger man being violent to his uh, female partner. How... Do you think that, how do you think that could impact on women's ability to identify abuse within their relationship with another woman? I think that um, for lots of women, um, in my experience, who um, are experiencing domestic abuse, um, where they are not heterosexual, 
um, where the perpetrator is not necessarily a man, um, they may sort of genuinely believe that their experience does not fit within the definition of domestic abuse. Um, they, they may have made an assumption um, that domestic abuse um, as a term really only applies to cases where a man is abusing a woman in an intimate relationship. And that's a massive barrier to them uh, being able to acknowledge their experience for what it is and seek support and believe that they will be treated um, with respect, that, that it will be taken seriously and that there will be help out there. And of course, for a controlling and abusive partner, they are likely to try and really reinforce the idea that what's going on actually isn't abuse um, and that there won't be any realistic prospect of support out there. Um, we know that for all survivors of domestic abuse, regardless of their uh, gender, regardless of their sexual orientation, that minimising both the severity um, and the impact of the abuse that they're experiencing is a very normal um, coping strategy in response to that trauma. Um, so for um, a lesbian or bisexual woman, um, they are likely to minimise their experience. And then on top of that, you've got the impact of the fact that their relationship may not fit what they have assumed is the, the way that domestic abuse tends to look. Um, there can also be a misconception um, amongst um, members of the public and professionals that um, abuse that's happening from one woman to another is likely to be less dangerous. Um, they may make assumptions based on things like um, body size, height, um, strength, uh, stereotypes about women and men. But that isn't necessarily the case. Um, and of course, if someone really wants to cause significant harm, they often will find a way to do that. They may use weapons to do that. Um, we don't want to ever downplay the risk that that person might be at. And that's kind of focusing in on the risk of significant physical harm, which we know is not the whole picture. So, you know, survivors of domestic abuse will tell us um, that this is always accompanied by a pattern of, of control and uh, typically belittlement and emotional abuse, which can have an absolutely devastating effect on someone's uh, self-esteem um, and someone's uh, well-being. Um, and that's really kind of separate to, to physical violence. So we need to be remembering that as well and never sort of downplaying um, the potential risks that someone might be facing on the on the basis of gender um, and I think it's just sometimes also very hard for lesbian and bisexual women who've experienced abuse to find um, other peers, other women um, who have been through similar experiences where they've experienced abuse uh, potentially from a female partner. Um, and that can be challenging as well in terms of um, in terms of levels of isolation um, and being able to feel that they're 
not alone um, or that they're not the first person who's experienced this happening to them. So what do you think services need to do, therefore, in order to make themselves more accessible so that lesbian and bisexual women recognise them as services for them? I think that um, much of the domestic abuse support for women um, that's delivered across the country is delivered by um, specific women's services. And um, those services, understandably... Um, often want to talk about the issue of domestic abuse um, using gendered language in their literature and their promotional materials. And that's important to those services because what they want to acknowledge is that whilst domestic abuse can and does happen to anyone, regardless of gender, um, that it is an issue, it's a crime, that disproportionately affects women. So we do see a disproportionate number of uh, heterosexual women who've experienced abuse from men reporting domestic abuse and seeking support for it. And many women's services, they want to be really clear and they don't want to hide that. They want to talk about the gendered nature of the crime. Alongside that, what can be really useful is to also make it really explicit that they are also able to support um, lesbian and bisexual women. Um, because it may well be that lots of lesbian and bisexual women might look at the promotional material for services, might look at the imagery that's used on uh, advertising material and posters and things like that. And especially because they may be feeling pretty low in terms of their confidence and self-esteem and their expectations, they may make an assumption that that service is um, not able to support them. Um, and that is a big barrier. So what I would say is that it is really useful for all services um, to make it really clear um, about the range of people that they can support um, so that no one makes an assumption, a wrong assumption, that that service won't work with them and therefore remains unsupported. I think it's also really uh, useful for um, services to consider their staff training. Um, they may want to consider the need to have a specialist LGBT post or project. Um, that may not always be something that is, that is possible, um, but it can also be considering about whether the whole staff team or perhaps just one or a small group of individuals are identified perhaps as LGBT champions and they receive additional training. I think that's a very supportive measure um, and that that can help services identify sometimes some of the subtle ways that they may have accidentally um, ended up being perhaps not completely accessible to lesbian and bisexual women um, or perhaps giving the impression that they only work with heterosexual women. Um, and I think the other thing that is, is very useful um, is for services to carry out um, accurate monitoring so they know um, 
the identities of the people that they're supporting in their organization they know any gaps in terms of any underrepresented groups in their services and it's also really useful to make some links with local um, LGBT groups, um, LGBT services, um, so that they are aware of what support for domestic abuse is out there. Um, and there may be some joint working that can happen in that area to enable, um, to enable accessibility and enable people to access support. I just wanted to pick up on something you said there around monitoring because sometimes um, people express a concern and anxiety about asking women their um, their sexual orientation their identity um, as part of the intake process it, some people feel that it's um, an intrusive question to ask so I just wondered what advice you would have on practitioners asking those questions and how they do that sensitively I think it's a really common um, anxiety for practitioners um, and I would say that it is a, a useful process to go through. Um, it's really common um, for services to uh, routinely have questions or um, paperwork that they use to um, ask uh, service users about many different aspects of identity. Um, and in my experience, it is often um, questions such as the question around sexual orientation that can bring up um, particular anxiety uh, for practitioners. And sometimes that includes a feeling that it's, you know, it's very, very personal and private information um, and that it is extremely intrusive or that perhaps it's irrelevant information. Um, that we don't need to be gathering it in the same way we might need to be gathering information about, for example, any physical accessibility needs. Um, but coming from a background of working in a LGBT specialised service, I would say that it is a very useful process and it is an important process. Um, it informs lots of different things. Um, so, for example, um, it, it provides a picture, it builds up in a sense a body of research um, about who is and who isn't disclosing domestic abuse and seeking support for domestic abuse in any given local area or service. Um, it then enables services to identify any particular gaps in terms of any groups of people who appear to be underrepresented um, in terms of those accessing support from their service and they can consider that in relation to what's known um, about um, the identities of the local population um, and whether it may be that actually um, that they need to be doing something additional to try and increase accessibility. Um, if a uh, service is wanting to apply for funding or make a case for um, having a specialist worker or project, uh, monitoring information can be very useful to back that up. And also on a more um, individual, personal basis, it can help um, guide support for that survivor of domestic abuse in some cases. So for example, a lesbian or bisexual woman might phone a domestic abuse helpline feeling very unsure about 
um, whether or not that service will support her or will adopt an affirming and positive stance um, towards her identity. And if the worker on the phone proactively asks her um, about how she identifies her sexual orientation, that sends a message to her that that service isn't making an assumption that she is heterosexual um, and that they are open to the fact that she may identify her sexual orientation in, a, in another way than heterosexual, um, that they're not embarrassed about it as an issue. So that's quite a positive message to send out. Additionally, it might be that someone is experiencing some really specific abuse linked to their identity as lesbian or bisexual. And actually that can form part of the risks against them. So by that worker asking them um, how they identify, that opens up a conversation where they may feel more comfortable and safer to disclose that. And that then may enable them to um, to be able to get some support particularly specifically around that risk and that might not have come to light otherwise and therefore have impacted the um the safety planning and the support and advice that they that they would have been offered so potentially it can have it can it can have some really big implications um in terms of how best to approach the question um i think that one of the things that's important is for the um, the practitioner who's gathering that information to try really hard to not appear uh, embarrassed or shameful because that actually gives a message to the client that perhaps their sexual orientation is a bit embarrassing or a bit shameful um, or that the, you know, that the worker um, is going to act in, respond in, in somewhat of a negative way. So I'd encourage everyone to be confident, uh, not to appear embarrassed, to be upfront. Common wording might be just asking someone, how do you identify your sexual orientation? Uh, you can tell um, the client beforehand that these are questions that you ask everyone, that they don't have to answer them if they don't want to, that they're used for gathering information, um, about the the range and diversity of people accessing the service. Um, and of course, someone might not want to answer, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I would really encourage um, services to be routinely gathering this information and to see the value of it. And, you know, a point you've made there is around how it might... Um, inform how you tailor a support plan to that person so just thinking about that specifically in terms of safety planning what might domestic abuse workers need to consider in terms of um, safety planning for, for a lesbian or bisexual woman so um, I mean any safety planning needs to be really tailored to the individual client to their specific situation to the risks that they're facing and really importantly, that it needs to be tailored to what the client wants, where they're at, what their hopes are. Um, so that's kind of, those are good practice points really for any safety planning. Um, and that means that developing a personalized and tailored safety plan for a lesbian or bisexual woman is often gonna involve some specific considerations that may link to um, her identity as lesbian or bisexual. 
there's a few things to be aware of. Um, one of them is that um, for for some lesbian and bisexual women, not all, um, it might be that they uh, socialise in very close-knit friendship groups and it may be that them and a partner are sort of both very much part of that in equal measure. So you may want to consider, perhaps if that person's thinking about leaving the relationship, about how they're going to maintain social support and not become isolated, and also about... Um, any considerations with information sharing with other people within um, LGBT communities and ensuring that they're, they're only sharing information with people they feel confident can keep that confidential. Um, I think it's also good to do some myth busting at times. So, for example, some LGBT parents will have made an assumption that perhaps their identity um, will be seen as a, a negative thing as a parent. The person that's abusive to them might have told them that social services would consider it to be a child protection issue, for example, for a mother to be lesbian or bisexual, which of course we know isn't the case. And it's important to myth bust that. Um, I think also for uh, services supporting lesbian and bisexual women, particularly a woman where the um, the perpetrator of abuse is also a woman. Um, just something for practitioners just to be a little bit mindful of is just that sort of slight increased potential that perhaps the perpetrator of abuse might be able to impersonate um, the survivor to try and extract information um, from services. Um, and often women's services can be very used to supporting women who are by and large who experienced abuse from men so that's just something for practitioners to hold in mind in terms of information sharing. Evelyn thank you so much for um, joining us on this podcast um, a lot of points for people to consider in their practice so thank you again. Thank you you're welcome. For more information on Rise Services please visit www.riseuk.org.uk RISE LGBT Refuge Project is offered to medium and high risk LGBT survivors of domestic abuse age 18 plus. Referral to the LGBT Refuge Project can be made directly to the caseworker on 07446 667072 or via the RISE free phone number on 0300-323-9985. Additionally, Rise at the Portal offers some specialist provision within its services to support LGBT people in the community who are currently experiencing domestic abuse in Brighton and Hove. You can refer via the portal.org.uk and the criteria for accessing this service is detailed on the referral form.